Well, if you want to now turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we are going to begin our time in, in the scriptures tonight, our time of study. We've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians on Wednesday night, and we are hit this point here in chapter 4 where we're at that point where we're kind of coming to the end of this first discussion that Paul has with the believers there. So I'm going to pray for our time as we jump into the Bible study tonight. Lord, we love you. We thank you, God, for your word and how it speaks to us. And Lord, I pray right now that you would breathe life into this time, that you would minister to our hearts through your word, that you would teach us and instruct us no matter where we are watching this, Lord, that right now we invite your Holy Spirit to minister to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, I want to begin our time with a question. Who is your favorite pastor or your favorite Bible teacher? Now, some of you probably think I'm fishing for a compliment right now, but I, I'm not doing that. Um, you know, and others of you might think, that's kind of a weird question, Pastor Rob. But, but really, in this day and age that we live in, especially with you know, the radio and the internet and podcast and all of this technology you know, where we can listen to different people on demand, um, it's easy to have favorites. And you know what? I want you to know that that's okay. As long as our preferences don't mean that we can't receive from someone else. You see, that's often what happens. It's like, hey, my favorite guy's not teaching and so I can't receive. And that's a problem because in reality, you can receive from anyone as long as your heart is right. Now, why do I bring that up? Well, you see, Paul points out here in 1 Corinthians that this was the problem that the believers in Corinth were having. They had their favorites. They had actually divided the body there in Corinth over their favorite pastor and teacher. And some were saying, well, I'm of Paul. And others were saying, I'm of Apollos. And others were saying, I'm of Jesus or I'm, I'm of Peter. And then you had, you know, we're just the Jesus only crowd. We don't need any of you guys. We're just into Jesus. And, and so this whole idea um, has caused a big problem here in the church of Corinth where they literally were divided and instead of being this vibrant witness to the community, they were a church that was full of all of these schisms and, and fractions. And so Paul is writing here to address that. In these first four chapters, he's going to spend four chapters in dealing with that particular issue of division because, as we've noted in previous studies, division is something that really, really grieves the Lord's heart. It's one of seven things that he says, I hate. I hate it when someone sows discord amongst the brethren. So to deal with this subject, Paul, in these four chapters, is going to remind the Corinthian church of four things. And we've looked at these. The first we saw in chapter 1, verses 18 through uh, chapter 2, verse 5, Paul wanted to remind them that the power was in the message and not the messenger. And so 
That's why if our heart's right, we can receive from anybody because the power's in the message. The second thing that Paul sought to remind them of is that we need the mindset of Christ and not the mindset of the world because that's exactly what the believers in Corinth were doing. They were following the mindset of the world. You see, in in that Gentile Grecian culture, they were divided. The, The people were divided over their favorite philosophers and philosophies and and they weren't getting along. And so the church was just following suit and Paul wants to remind them, hey, you have a new mindset. You have a different mindset. You now have the mind of Christ and you have been brought under the whole mystery of the gospel and and in this mystery of the gospel, what Paul has been wanting them to see is that Jesus came to bring mankind together. So there isn't these fractions and schisms, but we are all brought together under the person of Jesus Christ. We also noted something very interesting that Paul brought out in, that, in our study last time at the beginning there of chapter 3 when he noted that division, strife, and envy are actually marks of carnality. And that word carnality means of the flesh or of the, the natural mind. And what he was saying was, this is your problem. You guys are acting like people who have not been born again, who don't have the spirit. You're acting like the natural mind man when you are falling into this whole you know mindset of division and strife and that type of thing and so we noted the third thing that Paul reminded them of was this that he was wanted them to know that hey we're all working together we're all on the same team we're all shooting you know at the same target we're all aiming and we're all running towards the same goal and we saw that in chapter 3 verses 5 through 18 and you know, some people, they come to Christ and, and, and you know, that, the goal is this. We want to see people come to Christ. We want to see people grow in Christ. And we want to impact our city for Jesus. Paul saying, hey, we're all, we're all on the same team. We're all shooting for the same thing. And tonight as we come to chapter 4 and the final point in this discussion, this is what Paul is going to remind them and us of, is that we are all to be faithful servants and faithful stewards of what God has entrusted to us. Let's pick it up in verse 1. He says, Let a man so consider us, thinking of Paul and the rest of the apostles, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now pause there for a moment, give me your attention. This is interesting because we saw in chapter 3 where Paul used some humble, ordinary descriptions to describe himself and Apollos. He really, he describes them as day laborers. We might call them migrant workers here in California, um, that they were farmers farming in the same field and they were builders working on the same building. And he takes these two ideas to describe the the apostles, specifically Paul and Apollos, himself and Apollos, in this very, very humble um, sort of what would be looked upon as the, the lowest, you know, type of person in the working class there in Corinth. And the working, the, the people in Corinth had kind of a tendency to look down upon the working class. Well, Paul's going to continue this idea. He's going to expand upon it here in chapter four and, and, and kind of hit on this with sort of the same tone when he uses these two terms. The first he says, you know, let us, con- let man so consider 
consider us as servants. And the word servant is under rower. That's what it means. And, and I want you to think of the, the galley ships. You know, the galley ships were those slave ships. You've seen pictures of them. It's a great big, you know, wooden boat. And there's an upper deck. And then you can tell there's a lower deck. And in the lower deck, coming out of all these, you know, little window type things in the boat are all of these oars. And on these slave ships, these galley ships, what would happen is the slaves would be like the engine and they would be the ones rowing the boat, moving it along. And this is what Paul is referring to himself and Apollos as, as being under rowers. And you see the goal of those who are under the boat that are rowing, their goal is to get the people on the top of the boat to their desired destination. And what Paul is saying here, this is the picture he's painting, we're slaves of Jesus. And what we're trying to do is to get the people of God to the desired destination. What's the desired destination? Well, first and foremost, it's to get people to Jesus if they aren't in relationship with Jesus. But secondly, it's to get them to that place where they're growing in the Lord and becoming more like Christ and discovering who they are in Christ and coming into that place of maturity. And so Paul says, this is what we are. We're servants. I want you to think of us that way. We're, we're the under rowers. And our goal is to try to get you to Jesus. And then he uses the second term, stewards of the mysteries of God. And we talked about this last time, that that word mystery means that which was once hidden, but has now been revealed. And he's speaking there of the beautiful mystery of what God had planned in the gospel message, in the gospel of sending his son from heaven to come to this earth to rescue man from his sin. And Paul says, we are the stewards. Stewards were the household managers. Their job was to look after the rich storehouse of treasures and to make sure it was being used in the right way. And so Paul's saying that the apostles and teachers, they they don't own the treasure. It doesn't belong to us. We're merely those who are, are stewards of it. That God has given us, given it to us and told us, you know, how to use it. And a faithful steward in ministry is those who have a good handle. They know how, they know God's word. They're, they're into the treasure of the word of God. Jesus had described it in this way in Matthew 13, 52. He says, therefore, every scribe instructed a concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. And Jesus is talking there about the ability to relocate the illustrations and types and stories that are in the Old Testament and bringing them now into New Testament application. So Paul says, we're stewards of this treasure. But then he says this in verse two, moreover, it's required in stewards that one be found faithful. Now, this is such an encouraging verse to me, and I hope it is to any of you who are involved in teaching God's word or involved in any type of ministry, Paul says that a steward is to be found faithful. And the reason why that encourages me is because I'm not required to be quote-unquote successful. I'm just required to be faithful. Our world today has a tendency to judge pastors and ministries on quote-unquote success. 
how big your church is, how many ministries do you have. Oftentimes, you know, when pastors meet each other, one of them will say, you know, how many are you running? And I hate when they ask that question. It's like, you know, they're looking at the, the body of Christ like a herd of cattle. How many are you running, you know? And no, the body of Christ are sheep. And sheep are never driven. They're led. They're ministered to. They're cared for. Jesus said that we're to feed and tend my flock. That's what he told Peter. Well, God judges success by faithfulness, being faithful with what God has entrusted you with. And you know what? That's what I'm accountable for. The people that God has entrusted to me. There was a pastor once who was complaining to Charles Spurgeon because he felt like his church was too small. And he, he was complaining because it was only about a hundred people. And he was, and he was, you know, Spurgeon had a big, huge church. And, and this guy was complaining and Spurgeon looked at him and said, I think a hundred people is quite enough to give account of before the Lord on the day of judgment. <laughs> That really shut that guy up, you know, Um, because it's true. We're going to have to give account for what God has entrusted to us. And the most successful minister, have you ever thought about this in the Old Testament, by man's standard, was a prophet who caused people to get saved everywhere he went. Anybody, can anybody guess who I'm talking about? Well, if you guessed Jonah, you guessed right. Not only did that entire crew of guys on the boat all get saved, after they threw Jonah overboard and the sea got still and he got swallowed by the great big fish. But an entire population there in Nineveh, when he preached, all repented and came to the Lord. And some people think that that Nineveh at that time could have been close to two million people. I mean, we're talking, you know, the biggest harvest crusade ever at that point. Jonah, oh man, what a successful guy he was. You know, wherever he went, man, people got saved. But contrast Jonah with another prophet who preached for 30 years without seeing a single conversion. Anybody know who I'm talking about? Well, you guessed right if you guessed Jeremiah. And here's what's interesting. If Jonah were alive today, there would be books written about him. There would be conferences that would feature him. He would be the topic of a bunch of interviews. I mean, videos would be made, you know, by him on, you know, how to build a successful ministry. Jeremiah, well, he'd probably be the guy sitting in the back row at one of Jonah's seminars, you know, all discouraged and trying to figure it out. But here's what's interesting. When Jesus came on the scene, no one thought that he reminded them of Jonah. No one looked at Jesus and was like, man, this guy, he's he's just like that Jonah guy. But many looked at Jesus and they thought he reminded them of Jeremiah. And I think that's really, really awesome to think about, that Jesus was compared to Jeremiah. Why? Because Jeremiah was faithful. Jeremiah was faithful to what God had given to him, and he just left the results up to the Lord. Here's my point for you and me. Be faithful. 
Be faithful in realizing that we are serving for an audience of one. That Jesus is my judge and he is able to take what I bring to him and what you bring to him and use it and multiply it and however he wants to. In the same way Jesus could take five loaves and two fish, what seemed like just minuscule things, he used them to feed a multitude. Jesus can take what you have and what I have and our gifts and he can use them for his glory in his timing and he, as he sees fit, fit and all he's asking of you and I is that we would be faithful. Well, that's the point that Paul's going to make here in chapter 4 is that all stewards, what God is looking for those of us who have been a steward, a steward is somebody who's been entrusted with something and every single one of us, we've been entrusted with various things, various gifts and ministries and people in our sphere of influence and what what Paul is going to show us here is that all that God is wanting is for you and I to be faithful with what God has entrusted to us. Let's pick it up in verse 3. He says, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. Paul's saying, look, for me, it really matters very little how I'm evaluated by you or, or any type of human authority. I'm not, I'm not worried about what you guys are thinking. He continues, in fact, I don't even judge myself. Why would he say that? Because Paul's saying, I don't even trust myself, my own judgment. On these things. For I know of nothing against myself, yet I am just justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. You see, this was the problem. The Corinthians were judging Paul and his ministry. And rather than defend himself in the way that, that would only you know, fuel the fire and kind of elevate the conversation, what Paul does is he totally changes the perspective. What Paul does is so insightful here that when that something that we can learn from, when someone is coming against you, maybe the mud isn't the, the, the place to conduct the conversation. What Paul does is he elevates the issue. They tried to minimize him, and he took it a step further by saying, you know what, guys, I'm just a slave of Jesus. They were judging him, and he writes, you know, I, I, I don't let any of your judgments stick to me. In fact, I don't even judge myself. Why, Paul? Because I don't even trust my own judgment. It reminds me of what David prayed in the Psalms when he said, Lord, search my heart and know me. And see if there be any wicked way in me. David was saying, you know, my, my heart, it can deceive me. I think it was Jeremiah that said the heart is desperately wicked. It's deceitful above all things. Who can know it? And, and, and David recognized that about his heart and his motives. And so he's like, God, search me. You, you're the only one who can really, really judge me. And, and you know what? I think if we grab a hold of this, this is a principle that can change everything. What if we live this way? I want you to think about this. Have you ever been judged and a person was absolutely wrong in the judgment that they made of you? Has that ever happened to you? It's happened to me. And you know what? I felt so vindicated, especially when it was revealed that their judgment was wrong. Man, I wanted to just rub it in their face. I didn't do that literally, but I did do that in my heart. 
and among my friends and my, my family, and I judged them, you know, in my heart back, and that wasn't right either. Or, or think of this. Have you ever been judged by someone and they were absolutely right? They called you on something. And they were absolutely right. I have. And it hurts. It creates all kind of emotions in, in me that are both good and bad. It's like, oh, man. It's like David when finally he came to that point when, you know, Nathaniel said, David, you are the man. And it was like, oh, you know, everything he'd been trying to hide out in the open. Or think about it in this way. Have you ever judged yourself and been wrong? I do that almost every single Sunday. You know, some of us are our worst critics, and that's me. And every Sunday, you know, after I preach a message, you know, half the time I am just so discouraged afterwards, and, and, and I just, I just want to quit. And someone else will point something out about that message, and they'll point something out about, you know, I'm, I'm kicking myself, I'm beating myself up, and they'll say, oh, I love this, and God really ministered to me. And I'm, and I'm like, praise the Lord. And, and sometimes it's such a relief when somebody comes along and you know, you're judging yourself and they, they point out you know, that you're not seeing it in the right way. But have you ever judged yourself and been right? Yeah, I've done that too. And that hurts. And it takes you into a deeper pit of discouragement. Now here's the last one. Have you ever decided that God's opinion is the only one that matters? You see, that's where the Lord wants us to be. That's how he wants us to live. And it's a great thing when we recognize that God knows my heart, that God knows what's going on. God knows that I did my best. God knows that, you know, how I used my time. He knows my intentions. And, and this is something that will change your life and guard your heart and your emotions from that roller coaster of judgment. If you can go through life with this mentality, I'm living for an audience of one. That's what, in essence, what Paul is saying here. I, I'm not letting you judge me, I'm not even judging myself. You know what? I'm just, the Lord, he's the one who knows my heart. Well, verse 5, he says this, Therefore judge nothing before the time, until the Lord comes who will bring both to light the the hidden things of the darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. In other words, the Lord's going to one day reveal the motives of our heart. He knows what's really going on. Then each one praise will come from God. Each one of us is going to have to stand before the Bema seat of Christ. And that Bema seat, that judgment, is not a judgment where we're going to be judged for our sins because our sins have been forgiven and forgotten because Jesus paid the price for them on the cross if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. But we are going to be judged for our actions. We're going to be judged for what did we do with what, with what God entrusted to us. Our time, our resources, our relationships, the sphere of influence that God has given to us. What, 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 are, what did we do with those things? That's what God is going to judge us on. You know, sometimes somebody can come up and pat you on the back about something, but you're, you know, something that you did, and they're like, oh man, thanks so much, brother, that was so great, or thanks so much, sister, and, and, and you know in your heart that your motive was completely wrong in that. Well, guess what? <laughs> the Lord knows. They patted you on that because they don't know what was going on in your heart, but God does. 
And that won't be a part of your reward. But those things done with the right heart and the right motives, those are the things that God is going to be like, hey, (laughs) he's going to reward us for. Paul says in verse 6, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. Now here Paul takes them back to the issue that they were dealing with. It was their judgment of church leaders. And Paul says something here so important. He says, don't think beyond what is written. Now what does that mean? It means that we must get our cues and our standards and our vision and our clarity from God's word. That we need to get that from the Bible. And we're not to go beyond what is written. And you know what? This is interesting. The Bible doesn't really say that much about us judging one another. The Bible, there there are some places where where the Bible kind of lends itself to this idea that we're to be fruit inspectors. And what that means is I'm looking at the fruit because I can't see the heart. And I love what my mentor, John Corson, used to say is he would say, you know what, I'm not going to tear down a tree that is bearing fruit. And I want to encourage you to kind of let that be your mode of operation. And you see a tree that's bearing fruit in someone else's life. Don't, don't tear it down. Even if you suspect that their motives might be wrong. Remember what Paul said when he said this, you know, there, there's some people that they're preaching Jesus and, and out of the wrong motives and they're seeking to minister out of the wrong motives. But, you know, I'm just going to rejoice that Jesus is being preached, that the gospel is going forth, because Paul realized the power was in the message, not so much the messenger. So we can be fruit inspectors, but let's not tear down a tree that is bearing fruit. Verse 7, for, for who makes you differ from one another, and what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did not indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Paul's drawing attention here to where our gifts really come from. You know, there was a young minister, a young preacher, who was talking to an older pastor, and he, and he said to him, he, he said, you know, please pray that I will stay humble. <laughs> Think about that. Pray that I would stay humble. Please, would you pray for that for me? And this older pastor looked at this young man and, and, and he said to him, he said, what do you have to be puffed up about? <laughs> what, what do you have to be prideful for? You see, it's easy for us. We get puffed up in our giftings and the giftings of others and we have a tendency to elevate the gift rather than the giver of the gift. And we elevate somebody singing, oh, they're so amazing, failing to realize that it was God. He's the one that gave them that voice. I think the best commentary on 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7, is the witness of John the Baptist. When John said this, a man can receive nothing except it is given to him from heaven. Such a great thing to remember. James said every perfect gift is from our Father who is above. 
John says, a man can receive nothing except to be given to him from heaven. And then John said this, he, Jesus, must increase. And me, John, I need to decrease. It's coming to that place. And I tell you what, friends, this is one of those things that I think is the best thing that we can do is come to that place in our hearts where we realize that, hey, I need less of me and more of Jesus. Because I know in my life, when the, the more I see of me, the more I see of Rob, the more I see just how ugly that is. Well, Paul continues here in verse 8. He says, you are already full. You're already rich. Now, if you ever wondered if there's sarcasm in the Bible, well, this is your text. Verses 8 through down through about 13. Paul's being very, very sarcastic here. You know, some people wonder, does God have a sense of humor? And I always say, of course he does. Just look around. <laughs> look at the person next to you. Look in the mirror. Yes, God has a sense of humor. And Paul's going to use some strong, sarcastic language here, not to mock the believers in Corinth, but to help them see how off their thinking is. And he's going to do this by way of contrast. And notice, notice how he does this. He says, you have reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I could wish you did reign. That, you, that, that we might also reign with you. So he's saying, you guys are acting like you're kings. Now, I wish that were true. I wish we were reigning with you, but that isn't the reality. For I think that God has displaced us, the apostles, last as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. Now, this is very, very interesting. When Paul calls himself and the other apostles a spectacle unto the world, there in verse 9, he was using an image there that would have been very, very familiar in the Roman Empire. You see, the government kept the people pacified, presenting entertainments to them in different cities. And this is what they would do. They would gather the people in an amphitheater or in one of those Roman coliseums and they would come to see men compete in the games. And this is the games that they had that had become very, very popular in the Roman Empire is that the prisoners and the men, the gladiators, would fight with each other and then the prisoners would fight with the beast. In fact, the Greek word translated spectacle gives us our English word theater, theater. And the Colosseum at Rome became the center for these entertainments that would happen. And unlike today, in, in, in you know, boxing today, we have what's called the undercard. And the undercard is, you know, the group of kind of no-name fighters that would fight um, before the main event. Well, in Rome, it was the opposite of that. They would have the main event, and then they would have, after that, the undercard. And the poorest and weaker, weakest prisoners were brought in at that time to fight against the beast, and nobody expected very much from their performance. I mean, they had these, you know, tigers and lions and, and stuff that hadn't 
hadn't been fed all day and they were hungry not to gross you out. But, uh, you know, and, and these guys didn't stand a chance. I mean, it would just be like, can they run fast enough away from them until they would wear out and then they would just be destroyed by these lions? Well, this is the picture that Paul is using of the apostles, not as the gladiators, the heroes that they would, you know, look at, but as the poor spectacles. And this picture forms the backdrop of a series of contrasts that Paul presents for the purpose of trying to humble the Corinthians. So we pick it up in verse 10. Here's his contrast. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise. So again, he's being sarcastic here. We're fools, but you guys are wise. We are weak, but you guys are strong. The Corinthians were proud of their spiritual achievements and the factions in the church were proud of their human leaders and their favorite preachers. So they're all getting wrapped up into this. But all of this was only a weakness. You see, there is strength only when God gets the glory. That's why Paul would say, In 2 Corinthians 12, that's why I'm going to glory in my weakness because the more I understand that I'm weak, that's when Jesus has the opportunity to be strong in my life. He continues, you are distinguished, but we are dishonored. And this was really the crux of the matter. The Christians in Corinth wanted the honor that comes from men, not the honor that comes from God. And they were trying to borrow glory by associating themselves with great men. And Paul answers, if you associate with us, you'd better be ready to suffer. Because that's what the life of the apostle was all about. And Paul goes on to share here that we apostles, we're not held in high honor. We're despised. Oh, how, oh, how times have changed. And we live in a day and age where pastors have millions of Instagram followers. We have a day and age where, you know, pastors and people in ministry aspire to be esteemed by people in the world and, and, and sometimes to, you know, the, the detriment of their own lives because of sometimes compromise and carnality in order to gain popularity. And Paul said, look, the world, they, they look at us as foolish. They look at us and, and, and they despise us. And then Paul describes the suffering that he had to endure as a servant of God. Look at verse 11. To the present hour, we are both, we both hunger and thirst. We are poorly clothed. No thousand dollar suits here. No several hundred dollar tennis shoes here. (laughs) No, we're poorly clothed, beaten, homeless. And we labor working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things until now. I wonder how many would aspire to be in ministry today if they knew that that was going to be the result of it that that was going to be the criteria, that that was going to be how people would look at you and that's what you have, would have to, to look forward to. I fear that not many would. But Paul and Apollos and Peter and the rest of the apostles, they were not serving for the praise of men, but they were serving in order to bring honor and glory to Jesus Christ. 
Now, as Paul wraps this up, he gets really, really, really personal here. And I love this because, you know, we could look at this part where he's being kind of sarcastic and, and think, guy, that's kind of mean, Paul. But, but he brings it all back here because he's going to speak to them as a father. And he says this in verse 14. I do not write these things to shame you. So I'm not trying to make fun of you, in other words. But as my beloved children, I warn you. I'm using this kind of language because I want you to see just how ridiculous the way that you're acting is. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, a lot of teachers, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. Because so many of the believers in the church in Corinth had been brought to faith by Paul. Paul looked at him, himself. He viewed himself. And it wasn't so much in a, in a, in a way of like a, a right, but it was more in a way of that spoke of just the tenderness of his heart that he saw them as a father does his children. And he's looking at them and he's thinking, man, you are my kids. Now I have three kids and I love being a dad. And all my kids, you know, they're grown now and, and, uh, and, and sometimes, you know, it's even funner now being a, a dad um, than, than it was when they were younger because now they really appreciate my advice um, and they ask for it. You know, sometimes when they were in their teenage years, they didn't want to have anything to do with it. But now they're like, you know, hey, dad, you know, can, I, can I run something by you? Um, but when my kids, and all of them went through these sometimes where, you know, they would, were, would be doing something and sometimes maybe it wasn't even a sinful thing. Maybe it was just something that was, you know, in, in my opinion, a poor decision that they were making. But sometimes you just have to let them do that. You have to let them learn on their own and learn from their mistakes. And, and, and you know, I would never, ever, rarely ever was I grieved or angry at my kids because of what they did. But more often than not, I was grieved for them. Because I knew that they were missing out on God's best for them. And that's what Paul, that's his heart here. Is he's looking at these people who, you know, started off so well, but they got their eyes off of Jesus. They put their eyes on man. They got their eyes off of being concerned about how God viewed them. And, and they got more concerned about how the people in the community were viewing them. And Paul looked at them and and, and if I could sum up what he's been saying in, in, this, in these four chapters and, and really what he's going to say throughout this book is, hey, I want you guys to be who you are in Jesus and not who you used to be in the flesh. And it grieved his heart to no end to see them missing out on what God had for them by the poor decisions that they were making. And so Paul pleads with them here as a father. And then he says in verse 17, For this reason I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. 
Now some of you, now some are puffed up as though I were not coming to you. This is the problem. So, some had so disrespected Paul. They had, they had lost, you know, like, a, like an adolescent would their father, like, oh, my dad doesn't know anything anymore, that they didn't even think he was coming. They didn't even think he was going to show up. They had so disrespected him in that way. They weren't even taking him seriously. But he says this, but I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills. And I will know not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word but in power. And what do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? Here's what Paul's saying. It's like Arnold used to say, remember? The Terminator, I'll be back. Well, Paul was saying, I'm going to be back. I'm coming. If the Lord wills, I'm coming back to Corinth. I can't wait to see you guys. But this is what I'm wondering. Am I going to have to come with a rod to discipline you? Or are you going to take these things that I'm sharing with you to heart and repent? Am I going to have to come with a rod or am I going to be able to come and is it going to be a big reunion of love? Or is it going to be a day of discipline? And that choice is really up to you. I want you to think about this as we close. You know, Jesus said, I'm coming back. Behold, I come quickly, Jesus said. And when he does, when Jesus comes for his church, are we going to hear him say, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. Man, you took what I entrusted to you and you used it. And it might not look like much to you, but boy, it is awesome to me. Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, mom, in the way that you poured into your kids. Well done, dad, in the way that you served your family. Well done, young person, in the way that you sought to live for Jesus in your public high school or public middle school. Well done. Or is Jesus going to maybe say to some, depart from me. I never knew you. And what's interesting about that is that passage is taken from Matthew 25 where there's people who were actually doing things in the name of Jesus, but they didn't have the heart of Jesus. And Jesus is going to say, you know what, guys? I never knew you. I never knew you. Is the Lord going to say to you, well done, good and faithful servant? Or is he going to look at you and say, you know what? I'm glad that you're here, but you don't have a whole lot to show. Because you took the gift that I gave to you and you, you buried it in the ground. You didn't use it. You weren't faithful. You see, just as Paul would say about him and Apollos, the Lord would say to all of us, we are stewards of what God has entrusted to us. That's our mission. What has God put into your hands? What blessings, what gifts, what talents, what resources has God been given, has God given to you? And are you using those things for yourself? Are you using those things to gain popularity of others? 
Are you not using those things? Have you just, like I said, buried them in the ground or put them aside? Or are you using those things for God's glory? If you are, oh, Jesus is going to say to you, well done, my good and faithful servant. And I pray and hope that that would be the case with every single one of us. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. So rich, so powerful. And Lord, I pray tonight as we have went through this passage together, learning about stewardship, learning about being servants and under rowers, I pray, Lord, that we would have your heart. And God, that each one of us would realize that you have entrusted something or someone to us. And God, may we use that for your glory. And we ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, before we go, I want to encourage you to tune in with us next uh, Wednesday night as well because we are going to be looking at, there in chapter 5, a crazy passage. See, there's a guy in the church in Corinth who was actually having sexual relations with his stepmom. I know, that's gross, huh? But they were carrying on, and and the implication, we'll talk more about this, is it doesn't seem like she was a part of the church, but this young man was. And the church wasn't doing anything about it. And so Paul is going to rebuke them for their tolerance of this guy's sin. They're thinking, oh, we're just being loving, we're embracing everybody. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. That, that, you know, that doesn't work. You can embrace unbelievers who are acting that way, but when, it's, when believers are acting that way, when there's blatant rebellion going on, it needs to be dealt with. And we're going to see exactly why Paul says that and what he says about that in our study next time. Now, I want to just remind you that we are now gathering. We're still gathering in person. And uh, we are gathering on Sunday mornings now out in the courtyard, as well as on Wednesday nights out in the courtyard. You can go to our website to get the times for our Sunday services. Um, But, you know, I know it's great viewing and being a part of this online. So glad that you've joined us. And I know a lot of you, you know, you love just sitting in your pajamas or whatever and and listening. And some of you, you can't get here or it's not safe for you right now um, to get here. But for those of you who can come, I want to encourage you to come. To come to an in-person gathering because as wonderful as, as it is, to take in the word from the privacy of your home and the comfort of your home, it's not the same as being together with the body of Christ. And we are told to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, especially as we see the day approaching. And man, I believe Jesus, we're getting closer and closer to the day that he is coming. We are just in crazy times that we are living. And so this is a time where we as the body of Christ can come together and encourage one another. And it's super safe and it's a great environment out there in our, in our courtyard. It'll be cool on Sunday morning. It's beautiful um, on Wednesday night out there. 
And so I really want to encourage you. If you're one who has just been viewing us online out of a sense of just comfort and you could really be here, I just, I just want you to really, really prayerfully consider coming to an in-person gathering and joining us, joining with the believers because there's something that happens with God's Spirit in the room and in that moment and in that gathering that I think is very, very, it's a very different experience from you just watching here as I'm preaching to an empty room um, on camera. And so um, glad that you've joined us, and especially if you live far away or you absolutely cannot come. So glad that you joined us tonight. So glad that you're studying the word with us. But um, if you can be here in person, I just want to give you that little nudge, that little challenge to come and join us and be a part of the fellowship in that way. Um, We miss you, and uh, we look forward to seeing you. So have a great rest of your week in Jesus, and uh, join us Sunday morning. Our online services will be the same, and uh, we're going to put on Thursday or Friday, probably Friday, when our service times will be for our outdoor gatherings. So... Lord bless you. Have a great week.